Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. I had the opportunity to do a series of interviews with LGBTQ plus associates of color, trans and non-binary attorneys in big law you know, on a kind of anonymous basis where they trusted to talk to me. And it was really helpful to kind of ask, how is it going? What's going on? What do you need? And so I put together one of the the programs that we have is kind of coaching law firms on recruiting and retention. And it's this liquid gold information that, you know, people have shared saying, here are the real things that have happened to me in this workplace, even in workplaces that are known to be best places for diversity. LGBTQ plus attorneys, particularly of color, are having a completely different experience here. And so, you know, we have these anecdotes. Also, you know, we have this information of how are people mentored? You know, mentorship plays a huge role in who gets to make partner. Also, you know, if you don't come from, you know, money and you're a first generation lawyer, like looking at class, you don't have those, you know, built in business connections and the network that it takes to really kind of advance to partnership. So there's all these different key points to look at that you wanna say, how do we get underrepresented people here at our firm to really stick around? And you have to look at, well, there's a lot of things here that we're missing. So even if a firm was perfectly set up to be completely non-discriminatory based on metrics that wouldn't necessarily reflect on sexual orientation, gender, etc. the the deck just favors certain people. Well, yeah, I mean I think that, you know, we know that structural racism exists, you know, we have the data, we have the data around, you know, all these structural barriers that do exist. I mean, if I talked about the NALP data, You know, I also like to point to the National Association of Women Lawyers data there. um, If you look at the chart around how many men are in big law and how many women it's, you know, you can see these two graphs, but then we look at how many white women and then you look at the drop off for women of color. It's so significant as you move from associate all the way to equity partners, you could see the data and you would question, well, why is this happening? Why aren't we seeing these numbers? And that's where we look at the culture. And like you said, you can look at the, the, you know, the policies and practices. Do you have a non-discrimination policy? How about, you know, can you use pronouns in your email signature? You could check all these boxes, but if you're not actually using it in the culture, I mean, that's where the conversations really need to happen. I'll give one example. An attorney talked about being at a law firm where they were allowed, there was a policy where you could use pronouns in your email signature, but nobody used it at the firm and nobody talked about it. And so they never felt comfortable doing it. They moved, they were a lateral hire to another firm. And when they started there, they added their pronouns, which were he or they. And And a fellow associate approached him and said, hey, I noticed you used either he or they pronouns in your email signature. Which do you prefer? I have a friend who uses they, them pronouns, and I just wanted to check in. And they told me that made such a difference that they might have had the box checked, but at this firm, people were open and had the conversations. And that's where we want to get people to. You can set a policy that people are allowed to do 
their pronouns. Um, but if no one is encouraged to do it, then the policy won't go anywhere. You can set a, a policy where people are encouraged to, to add their pronouns, but where if people see those pronouns and don't understand why they're there, then it, it, it also doesn't make that much impact. So maybe you could share, you know, what, what would you say to people who look at pronouns at the end of an email and say, okay, obviously. Right. Yeah. Well, I love that question because it's often the question I get from people where they say, nobody ever gets my pronoun wrong. I don't know why I would add it. Granted. Um, but, you know, I think the purpose of adding pronouns and creating an inclusive environment where everybody's doing it or most people are doing it, you know, it really takes the burden off those people who are constantly being misgendered. So that it's not just the trans or gender nonconforming people that have to use their pronouns because someone's going to get it wrong. It's It signals that we know trans and non-binary people exist and we welcome them in this workplace. Even the White House website has a drop down for pronouns. You've, you've probably seen, you know, LinkedIn has those options. We're making the business case that we're in a world now where we're recognizing and affirming, you know, trans uh, people in the workplace. It's such an easy ally move. And I think it's the easiest thing people can do if they feel comfortable doing it once they know what a difference it makes. I, and I love to tell this one story. We I did a presentation for a global firm and this straight, white, cisgender, meaning non-transgender partner, he was inspired by the pronoun part and he added pronouns to his, his email signature. And about a month later, he circled back and he said, you know, Drew, I was in this, you know, competitive battle for this client and we got the client and they came back and said, we went with you because we noticed you had your pronouns and we, we see your commitment oh, wow. to diversity, equity, inclusion. So he did a little a video clip for us to tell the story to say, you know, look, it actually was good for our business here. I'm sure he was also an outstanding lawyer, um, and they were deciding between two outstanding lawyers and, and went with him because of, of that differentiator. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the pressure that I think a lot of law firms are, the good pressure that our law firms are experiencing from clients to say, how are you doing with diversity, equity, inclusion? You know, let, let me hear some numbers of, you know, who was on the team. And, you know, that kind of pressure from clients to, for the law firms to do better, to have more people of color, more LGBTQ plus people, more women um, on litigation teams, for example, is, is really making a significant difference, I think, in our industry. When you're talking about the pronouns, one of the benefits seems to be that it, it creates a welcoming environment to start a conversation. It presents a feeling of, of, of inclusivity, of understanding. But then what do you say to the individuals who would argue in a professional setting, you know, maybe we don't need to go into your, all aspects of your history? Well, I, I'd probably say that like in a professional setting, you really want to make sure you're referring to the person with the correct pronouns. So I think, I don't know if we need to go beyond that, but, you know, I'll just say that when I started, you know, when I was in law school, going back to those stories, I started using he, him pronouns and, 
you know, and I had changed all my documentation and that was appropriate. And so, and there I was as a, as a law student representing clients in a clinical setting. And wherever, when I was practicing, people were getting my pronoun wrong. And I was going before an administrative body at the time and representing, and they were, they, you know, they were, didn't know what to, to call me. And it was this really awkward interaction professionally, and it was distracting from my client. And, and it was excruciating for me. I wanted to crawl under a rock. So it was, it's helpful to be able to make sure that we are professionally, you know, respecting each other by not calling each other by the wrong pronoun. I don't, you know, if I was calling you she or her, and it, you would probably stop me and say, excuse me, Drew, it's, it's he, him. So I think that's just a basic thing. But, but you're, to your point around, is this appropriate for the workplace? This often comes up with the hot topic around self-identification, self-ID. You know, we collect demographic data in our workplaces so that we know, you know, who's working here so that we can report to our clients around um, diversity and so on. And sometimes uh, law firms get pushed back around collecting data around sexual orientation and gender identity because people say, well, that feels a little personal and private. And why do we do that? You know, we do that because this is not we're not talking about somebody's sex life. We're talking about someone's identity. And so when you say that, you know, I think, well, is it appropriate for me to be part of the team or to be in the workplace? It says that we welcome LGBTQ plus people here. And if you would like to voluntarily and confidentially be counted, that we welcome you to be counted. And that way we know who is, you know, who is in the workplace and who we're serving. I imagine that data is also incredibly valuable in helping to understand where you are and where you where you can grow as an organization. And I'll just mention that with Lavender Law, you know, we have a career fair and we have people recruiting there. And for the 34 years we've done it, we've always asked them to fill out kind of a checklist. Do you have a non-discrimination policy? And this year we transformed that into an online DEI index. And, you know, I I can send the link if you want to put it up here. And basically it's law firms reporting, you know, whether they have an inclusive non-discrimination policy, but also we ask how many LGBTQ plus partners do you have, associates, how many of those are people of color as well? You know, so I think having that information online, we have similar thing for law schools, our campus climate survey. It's pushing the envelope, there's accountability there. And it shows that, look, we're all in this together. We're all need to do better. We're grappling with it. And, you know, so we want those numbers and we want everybody to be doing better when it comes to those numbers. Should we talk quickly about bathrooms? I mean, there's been so many incredibly uh, hot button laws, uh, you know, in, in states from, you know, North Carolina to, to Texas, et cetera. What about at law firms? Do bathrooms remain a hot-button issue, or is this something that you're seeing is is resolving itself? Definitely a hot-button issue. It's definitely something I spend a lot of the consulting hours doing with firms. For example, I worked with a firm with their graphics designer. They're trying to, um, they have a new build when they we all go back to work. And they are adding more all-gender bathrooms, meaning the single-stall private restroom. And you can just, they said, well, what's the best sign to use? So I make recommendations around that. 
you know, making sure accessibility. Um, but yeah, the main principle that around restrooms is just that everybody likes more privacy. So when we have opportunities to create, you know, more private restrooms, that's great. The all gender bathrooms are often very popular with the entire firm. And where you have the, um, you know, multi-stall single sex restrooms still to make sure that everybody is trained that there's no gender policing, that, you know, don't worry, you know, trust people will use the restroom according to their gender identity. And everybody needs to kind of get the memo on that and have that information. So those are things, I definitely think it's still a very hot topic. But yeah, the principle behind why are restrooms, you know, why does this come up so much around the anti-trans bills? Restrooms equals access to public life. If we can't use a restroom somewhere, we can't be full people. We can't go there. We can't. And so I think that's a, it's such a critical issue. Who knew that I would be spending my entire career talking about bathrooms, but here we are. Well, I, I've seen some, I've seen some good ones recently. I was in a restaurant and the bathroom just said humans, um, which I thought was effective. Yeah, you would think. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's definitely an important issue. Restrooms are an important issue. Also, parity and benefits, making sure if you really do want to attract and retain LGBTQ plus talent, you have to have those equal benefits. And it's a competitive market. What do you mean by that? I mean, I would assume that the benefits... At top law firms are are pretty good across the board and, you know, decent insurance, decent dental. I think that there are still gaps, especially in the insurance industry when it comes to trans-inclusive benefits. Industry-wide, there is a large trend in still having carve-outs of exclusions for transition-related care. And so I think the HRC Corporate Equality Index has done a lot to push the envelope to make sure that if you want to receive 100% you know, corporate equality index rating, you have to have fully inclusive benefits. Some workplaces have then had to buy additional packages to make sure that they're covering those gaps that are present in the insurance industries. So believe it or not, it's still an issue. And also uh, law firms sometimes have to be creative around like surrogacy benefits and adoption benefits. And, and I, you know, that's definitely a hot topic where law firms are checking to make sure, are we missing anything? When you're saying fully inclusive, you mean that the policy would cover hormone therapies or, or gender reassignment surgery? Is that partly what, yeah. where you're going? Yeah. The side note, another thing that I did um, in my career was to start a nonprofit called the Jim Collins Foundation, which is a trans-led nonprofit that funds surgeries for trans people. The reason I did that at the same time as litigating these types of cases in court was because I saw there were so many carve-outs in insurance, um, and I wanted to raise awareness for coverage for medically necessary care knowing that this could be life-saving firsthand. We look at the suicide rates and it's often connected to people could not access the healthcare that they needed. So we have the medical community's outright statement that this kind of care, if it's to treat gender dysphoria, which is the insurance code, if it's to treat that, it is absolutely medically necessary. So if we brought a case like this, we would always win because we have all the medical community's understanding of this. But when it comes to insurance, there are still gaps. 
they would say, we'll cover hormone therapy and this surgery, but not any, any of these types of surgeries. And you can't pick and choose which surgery might be medically necessary because it's totally an individualized process. So a lot of insurance companies right now have carve-outs that they won't cover facial feminization surgery, FFS. And for some trans people, for some trans women particularly, that is the most important and most necessary surgery that they need. And so if, they, if we go to court with that case, the insurance companies lose because they, they have no argument to say that this should be treated differently. So that's the deep dive. But so they're still like, you know, it's a business. They're still trying to say, well, what about if we just don't cover this, this and this? And it has to be an individualized up to the doctor to say, yes, for this person, this is medically necessary and it should be covered. I'd only heard about it, I suppose, with relation to prison inmates. Some states had been doing that, um, those types of surgeries, and others hadn't. Yeah, that's the building blocks for all that healthcare. When I mentioned that I litigated, that we would often do it in the Eighth Amendment context. Like one of the cases I worked on was the Fields versus Smith case in Wisconsin. Wisconsin passed in 2005 the Inmate Sex Change Prevention Act. And we brought that to court and brought both an Eighth Amendment and equal protection claim because they were giving the same care for cisgender people for other reasons, but they denied it just for trans people. And so we won at the district court. It went up to the Seventh Circuit and we won on the Eighth Amendment claim. And the court found this is cruel and unusual punishment to deny this kind of care because it is medically necessary. So we have that in the bag, but the problem has been how does that translate into the business world with insurance companies? Yeah, especially when, you know, insurance isn't isn't necessarily a right. It's a, a benefit, as you described. You know, I, I wasn't always thrilled with the insurance that I had. It's a give and take as well um, with, with the business side of the house. And that's where I think it comes up in the DEI context that, you know, look, if you do want to look at retention and recruiting, it's a competitive market and you have to have these kinds of make sure, even if it's an additional cost, to make sure there are no gaps there. Maybe we can talk for a bit about bias. What, you know, what have you seen? What, what type of data do you draw from when it comes to bias in, in the LGBTQ plus community or in the trans community in particular? Yeah, sure. So I, I often like to look back at the U.S. trans survey data. There's some pretty intense, like, you know, employment discrimination data and so on. But in the, the legal workplace context, I think this comes up, you know, where there are a lot of microaggressions. The interview series I mentioned, I have a lot of examples where offhand comments are made often around people's appearance or trying, you know, like you don't even try to fit in, do you? And that kind of where it's kind of a classic gender stereotyping. I know that we are in a conservative profession, but, you know, we want to leave space for for people to bring their full authentic selves within that professionalism context. So I think bias shows up sometimes shockingly explicit ways, but we're also trying to work with people to look at the kind of implicit bias that we all, that look, we're all biased. I, I love that in some of these bias trainings where they talk about, you know, they start with, you know, some information sometimes about how tall people tend to be seen as, as better leaders than, than shorter people. 
and and just recognizing and sitting down and and realizing that we're imperfect robots and our brains don't work right specifically with the trans community what types of of bias anecdotally or from your personal experience what 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 have you seen well you know it's funny with with trans bias it's like looking back at some of the cases i worked on like one of the cases that i jumped in at when i started at lambda was the glenn v brumby case in the 11th circuit and and that was a case where these situations where like people are outright straight up saying it's because you're transgender that I am firing you. <laughs> like if you look at the Supreme Court case, the Bostock decision, the trans case in there, you know, involving Amy Stevens, the client working at a funeral home, she wrote a letter saying, I need to be my full self at work. And they straight up said, look, this isn't going to work. So I was just blown away at my career doing litigation where it wasn't like we had to go into depositions and try to Fight, you know, like you know, pull that out of people that this was the bias. That was the explicit reason. Exactly. It was yeah. like I would have the letter that was written. So you know, people I think are are still shocked hearing that, but it, it, that's the level we're at. I think when it comes to trans people and discrimination, is that people aren't aren't even trying to code it or hide it. It's blatant and, and it's easy to find and it's depressing, and so. Anecdotally, I think when it comes to how does that look for lawyers in the workplace, I think it shows up where people are really having a hard time finding kind of the mentorship they need. People just feel like they don't fit in. In our in our workplaces, it's really about like practice groups. It's about which office you're in and you need people sponsoring and investing in you. And so trans people are often the only and it's really hard to kind of find that kind of support. But I could tell you lots of stories people have shared with me. One non-binary, brilliant attorney at a global firm uses they, them pronouns, put that on their office plate back when we were in offices. And they told me that they had three different people, colleagues come by during the day and say, is this a joke? And they said, imagine what it would feel like for your identity to be a joke. And so it's just so difficult to navigate that. And so I'm very happy to be, you know, a support. One of the things I do with consulting is to provide like one-on-one coaching for people in their careers. But my wish is that more people take it upon themselves to be allies, to open up and to channel that clinical professor to say, I might not get this but I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to use my power to make sure that you're going to make it in this workplace. And that's what we really need more of. Is the use of the, of they, them, is that a relatively new, you know, in the last two decades phenomenon, or is that, is that something that people have been doing in this, in this country for long periods of time? Well, I think it's definitely caught on more in the last few years where people are more aware I've known people for more than a decade who have used they, them pronouns, and and it's been a struggle. It was wonderful to see in 2019 that they was the word of the year for Merriam-Webster Dictionary. When I would do trainings a few years ago, people would say, oh, you know, I'm a grammar stickler. And that that question's been answered, that it's grammatically correct. You know, thank you, Merriam-Webster. And to see more visible people using that term. So it's been exciting. I will just say, I will say 2020 for me was like the year of 
pronoun, like everybody wanted to talk about pronouns. And that was a great entrance for me to say, that's not the only issue for trans people, but it's a great starting point. So I have like a former intern of mine who worked for me at Lambda is now a practicing attorney who uses they, them pronouns and the honorific mix MX. Um, that's, you know, a non-binary honorific. And they are practicing before the courts in New York and talking to opposing counsel, talking to the judges and their clients. You can imagine that's really challenging. So every time we have a conversation explaining, like, your colleagues probably use they, them. They're out there. It's good for everybody to know. I know it's an investment in hopefully making their world a little bit better. And it's time for the MC League credit for those who are listening for certification. The code for this interview is 52115. That's 52115. And now back to the interview. One upside for the experience of your former colleague is I'm, I'm sure the judges, when they're confused, will just say, counselor. Yeah, really. They could find a way around that. You know, I loved um, in Billions, the one of the lead characters identifies as they, them. And just seeing these hedge fund tycoons trying to get their heads wrapped around it, I thought was was probably doing a lot of benefit for cultural understanding. Yeah, when I give a presentation, I, one of the strategic polling questions I like to ask is like, what is your familiarity with non-binary pronouns? And some of the answers are like, you know, I've never heard of this before, to I'm familiar, but I haven't had a lot of practice. And one of the answers is I use they, them pronouns myself. And it's been interesting, you know, having like hundreds of people on virtual COE like that to see, oh, I have colleagues I didn't know about. So we're seeing that more and more in the industry. The NALP report I mentioned, the diversity report, this past year was the first time they tracked non-binary attorneys in the profession. And they said there were nine in big law. And I think there were like eight uh, summer associates. So there's going to be a growing number of people. And I'm always so appreciative of how people are you're trying. I just ask that people try. And I, I share, even though I've talked about being misgendered myself, and I know the pain of that, I've also made mistakes. And seeing, you know, when I've misgendered somebody and seeing the look of pain on their face was all I needed to be like, I gotta, I gotta practice this. I gotta get better at it. And we all do. It's like, we're gonna make mistakes, but we have to lean into it and just keep trying. Well, I think that's very heartwarming to hear that even you've made mistakes on this. A lot, and, yes. <laughs> you know, the only thing you can do is just try and be better because uh, for, for many of us, it, it can seem a little, a, li- a little scary. Yeah. I always tell people like the worst part about being trans is not the worst part. There's a lot of challenges, but one of the challenges is the feeling that people are avoiding you because they don't want to mess up. And that can, you know, I tell people just don't avoid trans or non-binary people. Just it's okay. Like I remember joking with family members who would, would talk about Drew is transgendering. And I was like, that's not really a word, but I just love that people were trying and the, the language sometimes is, is overwhelming, but you don't have to get it perfect. You just have to keep trying it. And the practice does come. My pronouns for a year, I think, with my parents were 
she, I mean he. And that was like good enough for me <laughs> for a year until they figured it out. But everybody needs that time, you know? I was just curious if you'd heard from any in the trans community that COVID is actually presenting a nice opportunity to have time to make a transition uh, with privacy, with time at home, with perhaps less pressure to do it all in public. Yes, I definitely have heard that is an upside. It's funny, I there have been a few attorneys who have come out during COVID. I think partly they told me because it was a realization of life is short, but a lot of people are evaluating like their lives and their futures in different ways. But yeah, I think there's been a lot of opportunities for people to kind of try out their identities in different ways. There's also been, I think, a lot of isolation and pain. And so it's been a mixed bag for people but I'm interested as we start going back to the office, how that's going to roll out for people. Drew, you, you mentioned how sometimes people can be afraid, you know, scared to, to approach the topic. You know, I, I can imagine that being even worse, that perhaps they'd be scared to, to hire a, a trans person, not because they're bigoted or biased, but because they're scared that they might run afoul of something and end up you know, ruining their career, or they may be scared to mentor because they're scared to, again, perhaps say something inappropriate. What would you say to, to lawyers out there who, you know, have those thoughts running in the back of their mind? I mean, I think that's a valid question. I think there is a lot of fear about the unknown, but I would say to people to really, I hope that you lean in and embrace trans people I think people who are transgender have proven that they have an incredible amount of resilience, creativity to survive and thrive and to be lawyers. It shows, I think, a lot of qualities that I think should be desirable to employers for many positions. And so I think the fear is not necessarily around whether this individual would perform given all that strength, but it's around how will the world react, maybe. And I hope that people would take that up as their fight, that you know we're the type of workplace that champions diversity, and this is a true testament to what we believe in. Well, Drew, thanks so much for the time and for sharing not only your expertise, but a lot of, of personal insights as well. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you for watching Talks on Law. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.